worship with us. If you're visiting, I want to thank you for being here. Uh, my name is Pastor Brian, in case you don't know. Pastor Scott, our teaching pastor, has given me the opportunity to bring God's word this morning. But before we do that, a couple of announcements. Uh, just as a reminder, this Wednesday there will be no activities here. Uh, so no fellowship supper or worship service, children's or youth activities. They will resume, though, uh, the following Wednesday. So Wednesday the 5th. This coming Sunday, we go back to a normal schedule. Um, uh, yeah, a normal schedule, Bible fellowship groups at 9 o'clock, worship at 1030. In case you haven't been in a Bible fellowship group and you like one, I teach a Bible fellowship group along with Pastor Jason that meets over in the fellowship hall. We'd love to have you. And then on Wednesday, January 5th, for children's ministry, we have TAG, the Truth and Grace Clubs for children that will meet. They'll be here at 6.15 in the children's ring through those doors. Uh, we teach these kids three, uh, ages 3 through 5th grade through theology, through catechisms and Bible memory. It's such an amazing time where our, children's can grow, our children can grow in the knowledge of the Lord. Amen. Well, if you would open up your Bibles this morning to Paul's letter to the Colossians, Paul's letter to the Colossians in chapter 1. And as you're turning there, just as a bit of background and context to the book of Colossians, in case you're unfamiliar, this is one of the few letters that Paul writes to a church that he did not found. In fact, he was not really ever a Colossae that we know of. We know that Epaphras is the one who really founded this church here. We see that in, in verse 7. What had likely happened is Epaphras heard the gospel of Jesus Christ as it was preached in Ephesus or possibly Laodicea and then came back to his hometown in Colossae to put in the hard work of planting and establishing a church here in this town. Now, things were going along well, but by the time this letter is written, Paul is imprisoned in Rome itself. And to clarify, it's more like a house arrest. He was brought under some persecution for preaching the gospel, and he appealed to his Roman citizenship. That was a calculated move on his part. He wanted an audience with the emperor. The boldness of that man for the gospel of Jesus Christ. But something happened. Epaphras saw something that was disturbing him in Colossae. And so he made the trek, now using modern day terms, he made the trek from what would be the equivalent of central Turkey all the way to Rome to meet him at his house arrest to tell him about a problem that he saw. The church was growing, it was vibrant, but false teachers had entered into uh, the fellowship. Now, we're not really certain specifically what the false teachers were. There's no label to it. But we do know that the buzzword that they were using was fullness. They were offering the Colossian people a fuller, quote-unquote, spiritual experience that included Christ, but experience that you could not get through Christ in Christ alone. These false teachers were appealing to spiritual beings like angels and other such creatures, visions that they were having. They were creating rules for foods that you should eat and celebrations that you had to have in order to have this fuller spiritual experience. And in doing so, they were eroding away the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Because if you see, Christ plus something always equals nothing. And Paul knew that. And as a result, he wrote this letter to the Colossians, and it stands as one of the most Christocentric letters 
in the New Testament. The key theme throughout this book is the supremacy and the centrality of Jesus Christ. He's supreme over salvation. He's supreme over the angels and other powers. He's supreme over rules and philosophies and feasts and holidays. Look at verse, quickly just look at verse 15 and you can begin to see Paul unpacking the supremacy of Christ. In verse 15, he meaning Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him. And for him, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Are we catching the point here? Christ is above it all. You cannot have a fuller spiritual experience apart from Christ. He is the only one that we need. But you see, the supremacy of Jesus Christ comes with it some serious implications. If he's supreme, then he is the Lord. And if he is the Lord, then that should control our outlook in all of life. Christ then becomes the lens by which we interpret the world around us. He's our reason for existence. In fact, if we, we can only understand our existence through Christ and Christ alone. Before Christ, we live to please ourselves. In Christ and through Christ, we live to please him because we know who he is. He is the supreme Lord of all. The Christian understands that Christ is our greatest treasure. So what pleases him pleases us the most. And anything else is a cheap and shallow, hollow substitute that may give some temporary happiness, but will always leave us empty and broken. And this is why Paul is writing Colossians. But it does lead me to an interesting thought. This is a special time in our calendar year. A lot of people have thought that the years 2020 and 2021 left them hollow and empty. How many of you could say that perhaps on New Year's Eve or maybe on New Year's Day or sometime around there, you asked yourself, I wonder what the new year will bring? I know I have. I've stopped asking that question because I was always afraid where my thoughts would take me. Some look at things apprehensively. And I get it. We were constantly bombarded with negative news on TV. Everything is bad all the time. Everything looks down. Jobs and COVID and other such things. And we ask the question, what will 2022 bring? Well, I'm happy to report that 2022 is not an entity. It cannot bring anything. Instead of asking, what will 2022 bring? Perhaps a better question will be, what will I be like in 2022? Better yet, if Christ is the supreme Lord of all, how do you know that you will live a life that's worthy of this Lord? How will you know that in this coming year? Well, this passage of scripture that we're going to look at this morning helps us answer that question. It's very, very important. We have four tests to determine whether you are walking in a manner worthy of the Lord. So let's look at verse 9. 
For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you. Hang on. Heard of it. Heard of what? Well, this is why I had Pastor Paul read verses 3 through 8. So verses 3 through 8 is one long sentence. Verses 9 through 14 is one long sentence. But to give that background, that context, what did he hear? Well, look back at verse 4. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you just as in all the world, also it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing even as been doing in you since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God and truth. This is what he's heard. This is the message that Epaphras has sent to him while he was in house prison. They accepted the gospel. And the truth of the gospel being rooted in their lives was that they had faith, they had hope, they had love for one another. And this is why Paul is so passionate about writing this letter because these false teachers come in to erode away the very thing that he's commending them for. That if we add anything to Christ, we're taking away from faith, hope, and love. So he says, ever since we heard of this amazing report from you Colossian people, we have not ceased to pray for you. That should really pique our attention, shouldn't it? We have this amazing commendation from the Apostle Paul. They're doing well. They're growing in the gospel. It says their faith, hope, and love is constantly growing within them. They're demonstrating that around them. So what could possibly Apostle Paul be praying for? It's not like they had anger troubles and Paul was trying to pray that they would have some peace. He actually prays for something that may on the outside seem a little general, but it's not. He says to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Filled with the knowledge of his will. See, he's countering what the false teachers were saying about getting a fuller spiritual experience. You want something full? I'm going to pray that you're filled with the knowledge of his will. The will of God. Have you ever wondered what the will of God is for your life? So many people wrestle with that question. But usually how we mean the will of God, it's what job should I have? Who should I marry? Should I do this or should I do this? What is God's will for me? And so often the scriptures don't talk about the will of God in those terms. It more often talks about the will of God as a deep and abiding revelation of Jesus Christ and what he means for this universe and for us personally. We saw that in verses 15 through 20. But the question then remains... Why is he asking God to fill them with the knowledge of his will? Let's look at verse 10. So that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects. Now, walking, that's that biblical imagery of living your life. The purpose, in fact, this is a purpose clause, this infinitive in the Greek, is used for a state of purpose. The purpose of the knowledge of God is so that we will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. You see, knowledge of his will, as important as that is, is not an end to itself. 
It must result in a transformation of how we think and what we do. This is why we must have the knowledge of his will. Not so that I would be smarter. Not so that I could give a good answer in Bible fellowship groups on Sunday morning. Not so that I can win in Bible trivia, although I love to win in Bible trivia. So that we would live a life that's worthy of the Lord. Now, before we get into these tests, just to throw up some guardrails, because you're going to see what looks like little checkboxes. I want us to put some guardrails up because verse 9 says that, God, that Paul is praying that God would fill them with the knowledge of his will so that they would indeed walk worthy of him. This is an act of God's grace and God's grace alone. But like in sanctification, we have a part to play. We are called to holiness. We are called to live righteously. We are called to do the things that we see coming up in this passage. But I don't want us to follow into a checkbox Christianity. And we'll speak a little bit more of that as we move forward. So I ask the question yet again. How do you know if you're walking in a manner that's worthy of the Lord? Well, let's look at the tests. And the first one is this. Are you bearing godly fruit in your conduct? Look at verse 10. So he says, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects... Bearing fruit in every good work. Fruit is often used in the scripture. It usually talks about our actions, the works of our hands, our conduct and our attitude. The fruit that we produce in our life is what we do, what we say, our attitudes that are visible and evident to other people looking in. See, apart from Christ, life is empty. It's fruitless but not so for the Christian. We have an expectation to be bearing fruit in keeping with being a follower of Christ Jesus. And this is really in keeping with what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7. If you would turn really quick to Matthew chapter 7, uh, starting with verse 15. We're going to look at verses 15 through 20 of Matthew chapter 7. Jesus says, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit. Nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. What Jesus is talking about is how to identify people who claim to be believers but are actually false teachers of some kind. He said, all that you need to do is look at the fruit. What is made manifest, visible to you on the outside. Is the fruit in keeping with a dedicated follower of Jesus Christ? Or is it something else? This is also what John the Baptist preached, didn't he? When he's out baptizing and, and the Pharisees were coming to question him, he said, every, one of the sermons that he preached is, the axe is already laid at the root of the tree. And any tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. 
That's pretty strong, isn't it? See, what he's saying, this fundamental truth that Jesus and John the Baptist was saying is that the fruit reveals the root. Have you all heard of citrus canker? If you've been in Florida longer than a day, you probably have heard of citrus canker. There used to be crops and crops of oranges or citrus trees in general. And then a while back, I forget how long ago, there's this blight that started hitting the crops of oranges in particular, and it was citrus canker. And you can tell by looking at the fruit if it has citrus canker. These lesions would grow on the fruit. And honestly, you'd have to destroy the entire tree. At that point, you cut it down because, one, you're certainly not going to sell fruit with lesions all over it. Who's going to buy that? And what would happen over time is that the fruit would produce and drop too soon. Leaves would wither. The tree would look really bad. What we're doing is looking. Now, I'm not a scientist. I don't know what citrus canker looks like under a microscope. But I know what's going on inside that tree by looking at the fruit that it produces. I see that fruit. I see the signs of citrus canker. And my only recourse is to cut it down. And get rid of it. So here the Apostle Paul is saying that for a believer, we must live a life in such a way that we bear fruit in keeping of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. Galatians chapter 5 speaks often about the fruit of the Spirit, doesn't it? You don't have to turn there, but I'm looking in verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. That's the fruit of a spirit-filled life. But unfortunately, you can look a few verses above, and he contrasts that with the fruit of something else. He says, now the deeds of the flesh are evident. You can see it. You know it when it's there in front of you. It's evident. Immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. He's making this contrast. Now, I understand that as a believer, we do still struggle with indwelling sin. But the fruit should identify the root. Where are our roots? Are we tapped down into the gospel of Jesus Christ as they were to the people of Colossians? Remember, that's the basis. I've heard this report about you. People are saying that they can see the tangible aspects of your faith, your hope, and your love. I see the fruit, and I know that your roots as a church, as individual believers, are down into the gospel of Jesus Christ, and the tree is good. That's the fruit that we're to produce in our lives. The transforming effect of the gospel should be evident in how we live. Again, we're not perfect. We acknowledge when we sin publicly especially. Certainly nothing challenges the outworking of the fruit of the Spirit than driving, perhaps. You think you've got it down? Man, you've been living in such peace and harmony. And then someone cuts you off or does something really ridiculous on the road. And man, some other fruit starts to show, doesn't it? 
you're about ready to lay on that horn, not just a little tap-tap, but a little lay it down long and hard, maybe right up on the bumper. Then you realize that on the bumper of your car, you have a Riverman Community Church little bumper sticker. And you're like, oh, boy. God bless you, brother. I'm praying for you. you know? <laughs> but honestly, both the fellow believers, all of us who are here by faith in Christ, and the lost should be able to see that our affections have been transformed. We don't desire the things that we used to desire before Christ. See, what Paul said in Galatians 5 about fruit of the flesh, he said that those who practice such things, they make it a life pattern that this is the way that they live, and those are the deeds of the flesh. Is the pattern of your life marked in such a way that your fellow believer and the lost can see the fruit of a life in Jesus Christ? Or are they surprised when they hear that you believe? See, there's two parts really to bearing fruit. Conduct, which is kind of what I've been talking about so far, and a general mindset of glorifying Christ in everything that we do. He says right here in, in back in Colossians chapter 1. He says that we would have, we would bear fruit in every good work. Well, what works? I would say to whatever work that you're called. We may not be called to do every work. But we're called to fruitfulness in all of our work, whatever it may be. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 31 says, Whatever you do, whatever you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Whatever we put our hands to doing, we get busy doing them with a kingdom mindset. Christ's glory. It's all about Christ Jesus. Turn with me to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11, Paul speaks of this often throughout his letters, but it, it spells things out right here. Uh, Romans 11, look at verse 36. And you might put your finger there because we're going to go back to that in a little bit later. Romans 11 and verse 36. Paul has gone through, going through some really difficult doctrinal, uh, doctrinal uh, truths. I mean, chapters 1 through 11 basically are doctrinal truths. He's about to shift his focus into how we live now in, in light of these doctrinal truths. But he ends this doctrinal section of his letter with this doxology, this worshipful kind of statement. I want to draw your attention to verse 36 of chapter 11. For from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever amen everything that we do is to be with an eye toward glorifying jesus christ in other words if our hands are bearing no fruit for the lord we must repent we must ask the lord to help us because we veered away from his will because his will is that we bear good fruit godly fruit are you bearing godly fruit today? That's the first test. The second test to know whether you're walking worthy of the Lord is, are you growing in your knowledge of God? Are you growing in your knowledge of God? Back to 1 Colossians 1 and verse 10. And increasing in the knowledge of God. So we have bearing fruit in every good work and increasing 
in the knowledge of God. Now, in the Greek, you could technically link this increasing in the knowledge of God with bearing fruit, to go hand in hand. And we could surmise, perhaps, that this is an image of a big tree. If you look at verse 6 of chapter 1, there's a little parallel there that he's making. He's talking about the gospel, which has come to you, just as, just as in all the world, also incre- constantly bearing fruit and increasing. So he could be using that metaphor of the tree being our, like our life. And as the fruit is growing, the fruit of being a follower of Christ, that our roots are down into the gospel. Not only are we bearing fruit, but we're increasing, we're growing. Our knowledge of God is constantly expanding. That image of a tree being like our life is something that the Bible uses often. Jesus uses it. I'm often remember, reminded of Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. For his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, who brings forth its fruit in its season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does prospers. Regardless of a metaphor, trees, fruit, growing in their knowledge, are you actively seeking a deeper knowledge about God? You will never exhaust the depths of learning about God, ever. It always will lead you to worship every single time. I'm reminded, going through some of my seminary classes, one one class that always just impacted me the most, there's so many that do, but... In, in Christology, the doctrine of Christ, learning about Christ, and the topics that we, we talked about in seminar, topics that I've heard about before and studied before and held dearly to my heart, verses that I've read before and even preached on before, but just learning even more about Christ and hearing about his works and his words would motivate me to tears in class. The knowledge of God will lead you to worship if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. You will never exhaust the riches of God. I had you leave your finger in Romans chapter 11. I'm going to look back at that, but we're going to back it up now to verse 33 of Paul's doxology. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Did you catch Paul? dropping to his knees in worship with that doxology. He was just talking about these amazing doctrinal truths about the state of the world, the state of sin, the redemption by Jesus Christ, the work that he's done, our life as believers now operating in the Holy Spirit, how God, if God is for us, who can be against us? He's gone through all of these through 11 chapters, and he cannot help but just ending that section with worshiping God. This is why we need to be increasing in the knowledge of God. It leads us to worship. Have you ever felt like your worship of God has been stagnant, perhaps? Study more. Read more. Dig in more to the knowledge of God. You'll never exhaust those depths, as I've said. In fact, 
I am determined to believe that we are going to spend an eternity in front of God and Jesus Christ, learning more about him. And we're in a constant state of worship because learning the knowledge of God leads us to worship every single time. So we're going to both learn and worship as we learn about God for all eternity. But until that time happens in this life, we must keep ourselves open to the word of God. That's where we find the knowledge of God. There's no fuller experience that adds to Christ plus something else. This Bible is the revelation, the revealing of God himself. God wants you to know him. He loves you and desires to be known. The Christian who walks worthy before the Lord wants to know more and more about him. More about his life, his words, his works, because he's the only one who truly matters. And when he gets the most glory, we get the most benefit out of it. We use our fallen minds and we turn that around and we try to glorify ourselves or we make the passages scriptures to be about us. When it's about Christ and God's work of redemption in the world, nothing runs more contrary to the word of God than when his people have allowed, allowed their minds to grow lazy. And when that happens, we create conceptions about God which are born from the fruitlessness of our fallen imaginations. We create conceptions of God that just aren't true. And some of them are very easy to identify. You've heard the phrase, God helps those who help themselves. You've heard that before, right? Is that in the Bible? Say no. <laughs> but that is the fruit of a mind that's grown cold and lazy and has created an idea of God that just simply doesn't exist. In fact, when we start creating conceptions of God that run contrary to his word, we now have a God that's just like me. My attitude my preferences, and I can take the word, which really becomes mine now, and I twist it to make it say what I want it to say, so I can live how I want to live. It's the same sin that Adam and Eve fell into. You can be like God. Oh, but the believer who wants to work, walk worthy before the Lord says, I want to live for him. I want to learn about him. I'm constantly in the word of God so that I may learn more about him. You see, the living God is so unlike us that we must have revelation from him. We must have humility in ourselves and we must have the spirit of God to open up the word of God so that we can understand it and see Christ clearly. But you know what? That takes time. It takes study. It takes patience. We're a microwave world. We want it now. We want it fast. And God just doesn't operate like that. And this is difficult in an age of digital media where we're conditioned to very quick, very short bursts of information and it's force-fed to us. It doesn't allow us to think through the issues. It tells us what we should think. It's exciting and flashy and fun. And then we get to the word of God and God requires study, time, patience, and a zeal to learn about the Lord but this is what God requires of us. This is the will of God. 
there's another aspect to this, though. I mean, not only are we seeking a deeper understanding of the knowledge of God for ourselves so we can grow and we can worship God, but we need to do it for the lost around us. 1 Peter 3, he says, be ready to give a defense to those who ask the hope in you. The assumption is that we're being studied. If you're in Colossians, just look at chapter 4 really quick. This is like his close of his letter a little bit. Colossians 4, look at verse 5 of Colossians 4. He tells the Colossian people, conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders. Okay, outsiders. He's not using that in a pejorative kind of way. Outsiders, meaning those outside of the church. Those who are not saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. He said, conduct yourselves with wisdom toward the lost. Making most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace as though seasoned with salt. So that you will know how you should respond to each person. Note that word respond. The assumption is that people are studying us. That leads them to ask a question. I preached a sermon on Colossians chapter 4 not that long ago. And the spiritual man understands the things of the spirit because he has the spirit of God within him. The natural man does not have the spirit of God within him. He cannot understand the things of the spirit. They're spiritually discerned. If you're spiritually dead, you can't understand the things of the spirit. So if the lost is studying us, they see the fruit of the spirit in our lives. They see us growing in our knowledge of God. They just don't understand. They can't make sense of what they see around us. Leads them to ask some questions. We don't have to force doors open to the gospel. Live the way God wants you to live and doors will be open to you. That's what he says. Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Be ready to respond. The assumption is they're watching us. And when they ask a question, are you going to be ready? Do you have the knowledge of God in your life? And it could be something simple as I just know that I was blind, but now I see. You could tell them the gospel. Tell them what the Lord Jesus has done for you. How he stood and bore the wrath of God in your place. This world is constantly saying, I don't understand what's going on in this world. I hear it all the time. You do. You understand fully why people are the way they are. You understand why 2020 and 2021 are so crazy. It's because of this lost, fallen, sin-filled world. But you also have been recipients, by faith in Christ, of the good news. The good news is that Christ bore the wrath of the sin that has been pervasive in this world around us. And we can come and give an answer. If we're not increasing in our knowledge of God, he calls us to repent and pray. And what should we pray? We pray that God would reveal himself through the word. As he truly is, not as we assume he is. That's a prayer God always answers. Sometimes we pray for things and we're not sure if God answers us. And usually it's because, should I get this job or should I marry this person? And we pray, we don't necessarily know you want to pray a prayer that you can be assured that God will answer 100% of the time? Pray that God will reveal himself through the word. 
That's what he wants to do. That's his will. So I ask, are you growing in your knowledge of God? That's the second test. The third test, are you increasing in perseverance? Are you increasing in perseverance? Look at verse 11. Strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience. Well, like Pastor Scott always counsels us, I circled that letter, that word all in front of power and all in front of steadfastness. He told us to do that. I do that. And I was doing some studying in this. And this word all is like a marker of the highest degree in the original languages. Like complete or unlimited. A way that you can smoothly translate this is strengthened by God with the greatest strength imaginable. This is true of a person who walks worthy of the Lord. It's an extremely powerful way to write this. We're strengthened. A good parallel to this would be found in Ephesians chapter 1. I can read that to you. Ephesians chapter 1. I'm going to look at verse 18 through 20. He says, and this is, Paul is praying for the Ephesian believers. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. You see that parallel that he's giving in Ephesians? That's the power that is in everyone who believes in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. The power that raised Jesus from the dead. And I would think that's pretty powerful. Have you ever tried raising someone from the dead? Frankenstein put aside. Have you ever tried to do that? It just doesn't work. We don't have that power. But Jesus was the one who said, Lazarus, come forth. And he immediately got up and left that tomb. The God who said, Jesus, I am satisfied and pleased with what you have done. I'm raising you from the dead. That unimaginable power resides within each one of us. Are you living in that power? Are you living in your own power? When you compare powers, I mean, there's really no comparison, is there? What does it mean? Why? I mean, that's an amazing thing in and of itself. And it's great. We say, yay, we've got power. But like Paul always does, there's a reason for this power. What is the power for? All steadfast, the attaining of all steadfastness and endurance. And again, we're using the word all. That marker of the highest degree. So really you could take this, I think, and honestly translate it. Strengthened by God with the greatest strength imaginable for the attaining of the very greatest endurance and patience imaginable. Do you need patience? You working on some endurance? Not running, but, you know, in trials of life. 
you have the greatest power imaginable at work in your life for that. But what's the difference between steadfastness and patience? I'm not so sure you can create some really hard and fast distinctions. People have, and I think they've got some really good arguments for that. So let's break it down a little bit. Endurance. Strong in difficult situations. Resilient in impossible situations and trials. I'm reminded when I went through this of James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. How many of us are joyful when we go through a trial? Consider it all joy. I'm going to tell you why, James says, why you should have joy in trials. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. God, his will is for us to have endurance, perseverance when we go through difficult trials. And let's face it, all trials are difficult or we wouldn't call them trials. But how does that work though? How does the power of God produce endurance? The implied assumption here is that those who are trying to walk worthy before the Lord are relying on his power to make it through that trial in such a way that it honors the one who allowed the trial in the first place. You see, we can't plan for every eventuality. Life may not always unfold as we have planned. Can you say if that's true or not in your own life? Life doesn't always unfold the way that you had planned. But through the power of God, developing endurance and perseverance in your life, we can now say it may not unfold the way I planned it, but I'm confident that it's unfolding the way Christ planned it. Because he's sovereign. He's the Lord of all. And so if he's planned this, then he has given me everything that I need to walk through this trial with endurance and patience. And so it may be a day-by-day thing or a moment-by-moment thing where you're struggling in a difficult situation or trial, whatever they may be, whether it's related to your income or health or some kind of spiritual trial that you're going through. Every moment of every day, you're saying, God, I know the powers that work within me. Let it work up into endurance so I can honor you through this and not dishonor you through it. Too often when we go through a trial, we're trying to plan our way out of it. We're trying to create these little machinations of how we can get through this. And for all of our planning and all of our scheming, that's kind of what it is, the trial remains. Now, there are some things that we could do that, that are not trials necessarily, just difficult circumstances that we can plan our way through them and make the right steps and walk through them. But there, there are times when God brings these trials in our life and there's no way we're getting ourselves out of this. We've tried. So instead of just kind of falling to the floor, and I say this carefully because I love every one of you, like a toddler at a grocery store who doesn't get the candy bar next to the, conveniently next to the register. They fall to the floor, kick and scream, I want it. We tend to do that spiritually. Instead of doing that, we rely upon the power of God. 
and it produces endurance. And the endurance that has been produced in your life in this trial makes you ready for the next one that's to come, which is to increase your endurance. So as James would say, that we become perfect, complete, not lacking in anything. That's the will of God for you. But that's just endurance or, or steadfastness. What about patience? Well, some would say that this is a reference to dealing with difficult people. You need patience for people. Have you all met people that you just have a hard time being patient with? Why is it God's will that we have patience for others? God is patient, I'm not. It's simple. I need to be like him. God has been patient all throughout human history. You read these scriptures. All throughout human history, you see God's amazingly patient nature. He was patient with Adam and Eve in the garden, was he not? It's a good thing I'm not God. We wouldn't be here. Adam and Eve, I, I just created this amazingly beautiful world, and you sin, I'm done. We're going to swipe the slate clean. We're going to start over. Maybe I'll make a zebra to be like one of my own or something like that. He was patient with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, those amazing patriarchs that we see in the Bible. And yes, they were amazing. And Abraham especially, that man of great faith, boy, they all made some real boneheaded decisions in their lives. Sinned after God, trying to help God out in his plans, and yet God was patient. He has a plan. God's patient. Israel, when they constantly reject God, turned to idolatry, or complained in the desert as they were wandering around for 40 years, patient. Absolutely patient. How about patient with the people of Israel when Jesus was on the earth? They rejected him. The son of God. Someone rejects my own children. I get mad. The son of God rejected and forsaken. And yet God is patient. He's patient with the fallen world. Back in 2 Peter, Peter says... In the end times, people are going to come around and they're going to say, where's the hope of his coming? Everything just keeps going along just as it always has been. Nothing's ever changed. You remind them, and don't you forget, that one day is like a thousand years. One day for the Lord is like a thousand years for us. A thousand years for us is like a day for the Lord. God is being patient, not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. Has he been patient with you? follower of Christ can you look in your life and see the patience that he's demonstrated for you and he asked for me I'm so grateful that God does not always constantly give me consequences for every single thing that I do wrong and sinful before him he's patient he's long suffering he's patient as we grow and become more like Jesus Christ God is not pleased when we're easily enraged with people, both in person and online. We're being imitators with God, like God when we show patience for others. A Christian who walks worthy of the Lord desires to honor Christ by enduring the trials and being patient with people. That's the, the test, the third test. Have you found that your life has maybe been marked by a lack of zeal? Maybe it's been waning a bit. Maybe you find yourself in a difficult situation and you've been tempted to give up and throw in the towel. She's not been very persevering in your nature and how you've been handling this. 
Call upon the Lord. He stands ready. It's his will for us to have perseverance. Whether it's a trial or it's with difficult people, he stands ready to work that amazing strength within us to produce endurance. Are you increasing in your perseverance? With the fourth and final test, are you giving thanks with great joy? Are you giving thanks with great joy? We're going to start with that one little word at the end of verse 11. Joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. That's the mark of someone who wants to walk worthy before the Lord is that they joyously give thanks. You see, giving thanks means that we understand that what we have received has not been earned it was given as a gift. James 1 again, verse seven or 17, every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. What we have received has been given. It's not been earned. And we understand that. We acknowledge it and we turn it into joyful thanksgiving back to God. This was especially important in the Colossae, Colossian uh, context. We had the false teachers that were coming, giving them rules to follow so that they would get that fuller spiritual experience. Rules about feasts and holidays and what you should eat and what you shouldn't eat. If you follow the rules, then it stands to reason that you're owed a reward if you follow the rules. But we as a believer who want to walk worthy before the Lord understand that we can't follow God's law perfectly. We have to, if we want to follow God's law to be saved, knock yourself out. But you've got to do it 100% of the time without fail. The one time you fail, that's it. You're done. I think any of us can really begin at this point. We can't follow the rules. We needed someone who followed the rules for us. Jesus Christ. He was born. He added flesh to his deity. He lived perfectly. He was tempted in every way, yet without sin. He perfectly fulfilled the law because we could not, and the law demanded perfection. And it was satisfied in Jesus Christ. And then he went to the cross and was executed as if he committed the sins we've all committed. So that, that transference are the guilt and penalty of the sins that we've committed gets transferred to Christ and the righteousness of Christ, that right living and perfectly living in the law, transferred to us. So when God looks at us, he sees his son's righteousness. Why does that not move us to gratitude? In fact, that's what he does, doesn't Paul does here. He circles it back to the report of the gospel in their lives. He said, you're giving thanks to the Father, uh, in verse 12, who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. You know, I would have been happy if I could just kind of hide behind a pillar in heaven, just thankful I'm there. But that's not good enough. God has made us who believe qualified to share in the inheritance. And as someone who's ever dealt with wills and trusts, you know this has particular meaning. We're not cut out. We're not stepchildren in the kingdom of heaven. We're brothers and sisters with Jesus Christ. 
We share in the inheritance. We are adopted in God's family. And those who are adopted are treated just as natural born children. Our law acknowledges that. God's law does as well. If we don't give thanks, we're showing something else. And really, before I get there, it says to joyously give thanks. Have you ever asked a toddler to say thank you when they weren't very thankful? <laughs> say thank you. Thank you. It's not enough just to say thank you. It's not to have joy because it's real in your life. And if we don't have joy, we're demonstrating that we treasure something else besides Christ. You know what the Bible calls that? Idolatry. We have replaced the proper worship of God with an idol in our hearts. If our hearts lack joyful gratitude to the king, we have veered away from treasuring him. Are you giving thanks with a joyful heart this morning? Now, we may have seen these tests, and you may have thought, oh, I failed that one. Maybe you failed them all. Remember, this is not a checkbox solution. This isn't, okay, I must joyfully give thanks, and then I will please God. That's not how this works. Go back to verse 9. Look at what Paul is saying. I am praying that God fills you with the knowledge of his will so that you will walk worthy before him. If you find that you are lacking in any of these tests, pray that God would make that up in your life. Get on your knees and plead with him. I am failing in this area of my life. I need you to fill me, flood me with the knowledge of your will so that I can walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. This is what God wants us to pray for. This is the actual New Year's resolution that a Christian is supposed to make. As we stand on the precipice of a new year, we don't ask the question, what's 2022 going to be like? We ask, what am I going to be like? What are you going to be like? Are you going to walk worthy of the Lord? Maybe you haven't actually accepted the supremacy of Christ in your life. Have you believed? Do you see where you are in light of an all-holy God? Do you see that we've been failing, living up to God's standards of perfect righteousness? Repent. Ask God to forgive you. Seek him while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Today is the day of salvation. Ask God to forgive you. A believer, have you submitted to the supremacy of Christ in all of your life? So he said, pleasing God in all respects. In verse 10. Are you captivated, captured by the indisputable fact that Christ is all in all? Do you live like it? Will you walk worthy of the Lord this year? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the word that you've given to us. I mean, we say Paul wrote Colossians, and he did. But you're the one who really superintended that process. So really, you're writing this to us. And we want to walk worthy before you. As a believer in Christ Jesus, it is our desire to walk worthy before you. If we didn't want to walk worthy before you, Lord, we haven't been saved. And I pray for that one that does not want to walk worthy, perhaps has not put their faith in Christ and repented. I pray for them that you would open up the eyes of their hearts, that they would see your glory 
And just when all hope is lost, that they would see Christ who steps in the middle and takes sin upon himself. Grant faith, Lord, today. For those of us who are wanting to walk worthy before you, especially this coming year, Lord, I ask that you would fill us with the knowledge of your will so that we will do what we desire, and that's to walk worthy before you. Help us not to be captivated by temporal circumstances, but captivated with the glory of Christ so that we would walk worthy before him. Lord, this is only something you can do. We can't conjure this up in ourselves. We need your spirit to do this. And I believe that it is your will to do it. I pray that you would do that today. In Jesus' name, amen.